Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Hello, this is Nicole Giantonio, the head of global marketing at Elevate. The podcast episode you're about to hear is part of our next Normal Leadership Series, featuring Elevate's chairman and CEO, Liam Brown, talking with Nick Humphrey, the managing partner at Hamilton Locke. Hamilton Locke is an agile corporate law firm with offices in Sydney and Melbourne, Australia, a firm established as an evolution of the legal industry focused on aligning the interests of its people with clients. Skeptical? 27 minutes from now, you won't be. Well, why don't we just start off with me getting to know you a little bit. So the obvious sort of first question is, how did you end up in the role that you have today? A long, tortuous path. I never really knew what I wanted to do, but I studied commerce law, which seemed like a good broad option. And all through uni, even I'd try different things. I worked night jobs and did tax returns at PricewaterhouseCoopers and worked with a stockbroker doing night shifts and worked at little law firms and so on. So I, I really worked all through uni, was very lucky to kind of get a job with Mallison's, which is a very well-known Australian firm. Did the sort of graduate program there and then again was very lucky to get seconded to London when I was quite young to work with Clifford Chance, which was a very pivotal experience for me because I, I sort of went to London, big market, private equity was not yet taking off in Australia. So when I came home, I was sort of one of the only people that had had that experience. Private equity wasn't sexy then. No one really knew how to do it. Right place, right time. So I, that's sort of my early stage of my career was just, you know, right place, right time, a bit of luck. So, I mean, again, from there, it's been, I would say, was again, placed to take leadership roles quite young. Had some great mentors, had some less than great experiences with kind of managing partners. So I guess quite early in my career, became fascinated with leadership and motivation and driving the right behaviors. And I guess became academically interested in it as well. So I embarked on a strange journey where over a 10-year period, I interviewed, I guess, a couple of hundred people. So psychologists, coaches, elite soldiers and officers, um, CEOs, entrepreneurs, Harvard professors, clinical psychologists, the whole thing. And lots of lawyers as well, right, Liam? It wasn't just outside the law, but I really asked them all sorts of questions about leadership and building teams and so on. So that was part of my journey to where I got to today, which was a real frustration with how big law had run in the past and how culture was really just a postcard, but not really authentically held. And the kind of mental health issues and churn issues where even pre-COVID, there was a lot of pressure in firms to perform, a lot of stress and lots of churn. So we obviously weren't meeting the career aspirations of our people, whether they were a junior lawyer or a partner or even a support person, sort of frames how I ended up where I am today. One of the things that comes to mind, though, was you were a junior lawyer once upon a time. Yes. Experiencing leadership, experiencing management. How did that then inform what you bring to being a leader today? I think one important theme for me is that the old playbook doesn't really work as much anymore. In the old days, I think managing partners were like a policeman. Um, they'd pull you over for a timesheet violation or you know, give you demerit points for not recovering your debts or whatever. They were very much all about financial hygiene, 
all about the levers that were utilization, realization, and rates. So it wasn't, I am simplifying, but in the good old days, and, and I include myself in this, all I had to do was put rates up. Utilization kept booming and the firms were profitable. So the toolbox we had was pretty small. It's probably just a sledgehammer. Someone underperformed and you kind of donk them on the head. But we did not have a toolbox around leadership, purpose, values, culture. They're three very different, complex things that we never got to learn about as a lawyer. We were technically brilliant. We loved our job, but no one ever taught us about those things. I've worked with some wonderful leaders in my time, and I've learned some very, very valuable lessons about what to do and what not to do. So I think one little example would be being through the GFC and TechRec. And I think what I observed as a more junior person, so I was not in a leadership role really in the GFC. I was a lot younger, obviously, but I was running a team and I was a partner and I think I might have been head of a big group. We didn't have the skills to deal with the GFC. We knew we had to cut costs, but we didn't have a plan. We were caught unprepared. So our approach was randomly make people redundant. It was awful. It was stressful. It didn't seem well planned. It didn't seem well executed. And I think on the receiving end of that, we were all waiting to get the tap on the shoulder to be moved on. So I think that was an example of, of poor leadership in a time of crisis. And I, I've always remembered that. And I think the outcome of that was firstly, I was very deliberate about learning from those experiences in crisis. And in fact, Three years ago, I sat down with my senior leadership team and said, okay, guys, it's the GFC. Revenues are down 30%. Profits are down 20%. Let's go. And everyone was laughing at me saying, but business is great. Let's have some fun. Let's do a fire drill. Let's just muck around. I'm locking you in for a couple of hours. We ended up being there for a lot longer than that. And it was a really great process just to be clear-headed, not under pressure, figure out what was important, what wasn't important. And that became the foundations of a plan that we had kind of sitting in the bottom drawer so that when sort of COVID hit, we could calmly get the plan out and relook at it. And part of it was actually a plan that had to be implemented over a long period of time. And luckily for us, we were a very long way through implementing the plan. It's little things like making fixed costs, variable costs, having practice groups that were counter-cyclical giving M&A lawyers skills to pivot and move into other practice groups like restructuring, building a brand that wasn't so centered on M&A or private equity and having a brand that was starting to push into restructuring litigation and things like that. There was a 20-point plan that we were probably, I'd say, 90% of the way through. So that was definitely a takeaway I had from the poor management was when trouble comes, you need to have a plan that you can execute under the fire of stress. And it gives real confidence. We live through a a lot of business continuity planning that's tested just by the nature of the customers we work with. I'll test you with, I think, pretty obvious conditions of testing electricity or internet connectivity drops. But the discipline of actually running those drills is something that I haven't seen at a executive team-wide basis. You move from, you've got a point of view about what the answers are, to you actually have a shared point of view. It's it's a subtlety because... When the crisis came, I got the plan out and said, okay, we've already talked about this and we've already agreed A, B, C, D. And they all went, yeah, we did. It was very calming, reassuring. And then to some extent, it minimized pushback around key decisions. In the traditional partnership model, you're in trouble, right? Because every partner thinks they're a leader and an owner and 
a decision maker. So you've got to run everything past everyone. Yep. And it's impossible to move quickly. I think for us, we were able to move really quickly because A, I'm the CEO and managing partner and I can execute based on the plan and report to my board. I didn't have to go back and ask for permission. I'd already said to them, here's the plan, here's the playbook. If something happens, this is what we're going to have to do. So I think, yes, it was good that everyone already knew that that was the plan. So there was no surprises and no pushback. Did you find that going through a process like the one that you ran caused you to think about, okay, does our strategy currently address these challenges or issues or opportunities? You know, strategy is a longer term thing that guides us through. What I have seen is some clients and competitors who their strategies are clearly broken in the current climate. If you're in travel or hospitality in Australia, you're in serious trouble. Mm -hmm. And if you're a law firm, if you're overexposed to M&A or capital markets, you're in trouble. Or if the lawyer to a sector that's in a down round, you're in trouble. So those clients and law firms that have had a strategy which was to go a certain direction, I think they need to have the discipline to stop and pivot and change direction and have a new strategy. We know from past behavior, we know that distress will be busy. We know restructuring will, will be busy. We know everyone's going to sue everyone. Most of the deals we've recently completed, whether it's a banking deal or a corporate deal or a private equity deal, you're going to get buyer's remorse. So they're going to sue the sellers for a warranty claim or a burnout problem or whatever. We kind of know all that. Let's, over a period of time, get those skill sets into the group. Let's train partners to have that deeper skill set. It was a shared journey of discovery. What it took was some really complex, nuanced discussions around markets, playing to our strengths, weaknesses, opportunities. That was a collective effort of not just the sort of head office and the board, but the partner group as well. That was an important part of it. Creating space in our busy diaries every six months to regroup for a whole day. Lots of elements of the strategy didn't pan out. And I think you need a much different toolbox now. The amplification of technology is mind-blowing. One of my themes is really just the velocity of change it throws everything up for grabs. The velocity is really hard to adjust to when your toolkit involves you meeting people and kind of sort of management by walking around in the kind of physical sense. I mean, one of my mentors took me aside a few years ago and said, you know, it's really important that you know everyone's name and you walk around and you have a coffee with them and pat them on the back and you say day." And I thought, what a great way to do it. Just wonderful. So that's what I became. I became the guy that just walked around. I knew everyone it gets harder and harder as you get bigger. I've lost that ability to have my informal bump into someone in the coffee room, have a chat. How are you? How are you going? Whether it was with a partner or a junior lawyer, part of our strategy and approach was really very open, very frank, sometimes too frank, but we've heard on the side of saying, guys, this is an honest and full and frank assessment of the market and where we stand, but this is our plan. This is how we think we're getting through it. And I think that openness has earned loyalty and trust. Some of the most exciting things that have happened in our firm weren't driven by the leadership. It was driven by our most junior people. So you know, I believe a problem shared is a problem solved. And you know, I've hired brilliant, articulate, ambitious young people. Why kind of put them in the salt mines and say, go and do that? I know you're, you've only just been out of law school for one year, but here's an interesting, complex problem. Why don't you run the program? So a great example of that was our community program. We already had all these different pro bono. We acted for all these major charities, which was great and authentic. We weren't changing the dial for the charity because we were just 
giving them free legal work. And so I sat down with one of our graduates who's passionate about community and said, what I want you to do is find three charities where what they're doing is important. It's a mirror to what we're trying to achieve, which is empowering people and leadership and being the change. Go and find me some pro bono charities that we can really help them because our our input will make a difference. And what they're doing kind of resonates with what we're doing. And she said, oh, well, who's the partner on the project? And I said, well, you are. You're the boss. You've got a direct line to me. Whatever resources you need, go, go do it. And it was wonderful because she went away, came up with 10 different programs, and we shortlisted two or three of them. And one of them is, you know, Youth in Search, which is about helping young people to be the change in crisis by giving them leadership skills, which I thought, you know, fantastic because that's our mantra is we want our lawyers to become leaders and be much more multidimensional and specialist lawyers. But I think the beautiful part of that program was we had impact. It was something she was passionate about. Another example is with the wellness and mental health issues. I've struggled to help my partners and people to deal with the issue. It's very complex. I've read every article I can find on the topic. But again, one of our junior people took over the problem and did extensive research, did a survey of lawyers in New South Wales, has now published a report with some quite complex confronting findings. But again, the solution didn't come from head office. The problem did, I said, hey guys, we've got to be really careful here. I can see the mood, I can read how it's reacting and fair enough too, right? It's been a pretty unusual time and all aspects of our lives have been affected. But again, what I felt was great was we had impact, we were scientific about it, the results which have come out are practical and it can be implemented. So I really like that. With this approach to managing, you're identifying a problem, but you're really not only empowering but also expecting impact from people. How much does this help people with working remotely? The teams are distributed, but we're already used to autonomy. I don't mean autonomy in the sense of someone gives me an instruction in my office. It is, I'm part of a team, but more importantly, I'm actually part of a team of teams. How's that helped you? How's that actually helped the firm address or respond to working remotely? I was pleased and surprised at how quickly we adapted to working from home. I mean, it hasn't been perfect, but compared to other firms which have really struggled with it, the technology is great. If you don't have the technology, you're really in trouble, right? But there's layers of complexity to this issue. One is culturally, if you're not in the office, then you must be goofing off. And part of it is not trusting the team enough to, you know, unless you can see them and touch them and look Mm -hmm. at their timesheets and so on. So culturally, there's a lot of problems there around tracking people in six-minute increments and holding them accountable to timesheets and who's the last person out of the office and all those sorts of things. So I think there's an interaction of a few different factors here that allowed us to move to the new environment. Now, it hasn't been painless, but it's been a positive experience. I think part of that was having a culture of trusting people. So one of my programs over the last many years has really been taking people away and building sort of building blocks around what are the non-negotiable behaviors. And one of the big problems in law firms is gossip and rumors. It's a huge problem, not just in law, but in businesses generally, that kind of not having all the facts, not knowing what the other person's doing. And if you're not in the office, you're obviously not working. So I think in a way it was lucky that over the last few years, we had a series of workshops where I sort of said, you don't know what people are doing. Some people prefer to work at home. Some people have, you know, kids, they're doing kids drop up. You didn't have the facts. 
we don't care about inputs, which is timesheets. We care about outputs. We care about impact. I'm pretty pleased that culturally we'd started to work on that. And I think the other thing that was great was our whole business is really breaking the habits of big law. Mm. And I'm not bashing up big law because I've been in it my whole life and I love it. A lot of my friends are in it and there are many great things about smart, passionate people doing great work. What I'm trying to do is break the bad habits, the bad aspects of it. So already we were in habit-breaking mode. So we were already in open plan, not big offices. As you know, we've outsourced our back office. We've gone digital. We were trying to be paperless. We were trying to adopt process map systems, all these radical changes, which were breaking these habits of a lifetime. That sort of fluidity and not getting ready to sort of settle down in a new pattern, we had already been doing that. So if you can imagine, I'm bringing a new person in every couple of days. Like we've hired, I don't know, 20 or 30 people in the last quarter. Mm -hmm. And I'm taking them out of an existing law firm where they've got a a huge office and there's one-on-one secretaries and, you know, they tell their secretary to go and get their a cup of coffee and they're dry cleaning. And then they, you know, there's there's all these sort of layers of habits which they would need to break. We'd already started going down that pathway. So I think when we had to move to remote working full-time, we were already in this mode of, well, everything's up for grabs. Culturally, because of the non-negotiable stuff and also this kind of feeling that let's work together to be open to change, which is one of our kind of core values is just openness to change and agility. So those two things were quite kind of helpful. You touched on digital working, which is the way you work and the tools, et cetera, the environment. But then there's this part that you've also covered, which is, you know, I call digital workers. And digital workers, it's how do we actually work digitally and how do we manage digitally? It's everything from that kind of micro expression, if you know what I mean, when it's that email that is that one email or that one IM that was like, just check in if you're around kind of thing, which sends the signal to the other person of like, well, I'm not really sure I can trust you. And it's so you have to train managers on how to manage remotely. But then the other piece to this is that you have to train people how to work remotely, not being on all the time. And I know you've done a lot of work underlying building blocks of work. How do you help people, the digital workers, how do you help people really orient themselves differently when they join your firm? The always on culture, always responding to messages, multiple forms of messages through kind of WhatsApp app and text. And now I've got Teams messages. And so for me, the whole mental health issue was never talked about. We're alpha partners, whether they're male or female, you know, with the Vikings, we always work 80 hours a week and nothing's going to get in our way. And for me, my hobby is I do martial arts. So here I am, this sort of guy that's in boxing rings. And I have found the sheer complexity of what we're dealing with, the uncertainty of what we're dealing with, the ambiguity of what we're dealing with has been confronting my partners who are the mini Vikings out there, you know, brilliant, smart, whatever. They've found it tough too, right? So suddenly every part of your life is challenged. Your health, your family's health, your job security, your financial security, the boundaries between work and home and family, being socially isolated. You'd have to be fairly naive to think that people won't break and you won't break. Part of what I've tried to do is, so the normal managing partner, his agenda is timesheets and financial hygiene and stuff that. My agenda is, how is everyone feeling? Are we having open and regular conversations. When I say open conversations, I mean open conversation. My job is not the policeman anymore. It's actually, I'm your mentor. 
your friend, unload, vent on me. So my role is very different and very nuanced in that respect. But I think by having mental health and well-being on the agenda is a good start. We've had multiple town halls with the entire firm. So partly trying to get rid of the, it's a topic that you don't hide away anymore. We can have open conversations around it. We can share openly what works and what doesn't work. And that requires vulnerability. Even the most senior people can open up and share experiences and say, well, to either their team or their colleagues or even to management to say, well, yes, it's tough, but this is how I'm dealing with it. And by having these shared experiences, people realize they're not alone. Being practical about it is useful as well. So we've done a series of training sessions and I gathered together all the research in one place and shared it with everyone. And we sort of get this rhythm of talking about gratitude and mindfulness and positive mindset. You've got to start at some stage. As they say, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today, right? So if you haven't been having these conversations with your people, start today. It's really tough, right? Because again, you're the boss. You're meant to have all the answers. So I think don't be afraid to show some vulnerability. But I think a lot of it is one-on-ones where you're there's no objective of the call other than just to reach out. Started to get it on the agenda. We're having regular conversations about it. I could get rid of some of the myths about it. You know, oh, meditations for, you know, hippies. I don't know which particular aspect of it works for me. And that's such a personal thing. But I wake up very early every day and I have one hour of this sort of sacred time when my phone's off. I don't even look at it. I don't look at emails. I don't read the news. I don't look at CNN or whatever. I just have this hour of digital free time where I can journal or meditate or whatever I'm doing, create, solve problems. And so that's the best part of my day, right? When I've done that little bit of me time, clear thinking and reflection and whatever, then I turn my phone on and the normal day starts. But I think there's this really powerful kind of ritual and routine that just gets my head straight. Mental health well-being is such an important topic. We've hidden it away in the closet for a long time. But the survey that some of our young lawyers ran in New South Wales, they found 55% of young lawyers have trouble sleeping. 75% of them felt that they couldn't focus due to worrying either about job security, financial security, and the blurring of work. You need to find a way to be able to not only have boundaries from work seeping into your home, you also need to find a way to actually have boundaries. It almost sounds hard to say, but boundaries where you actually say to your family, this is the ritual. I don't know whether or not it's the, you know, the lemon on the table when I'm actually working in my corner in my shared apartment with my flatmate. You've got to find a way to be able to agree so that you can say, now I'm in work mode. You talked about something that really was very interesting to me. I imagine that you'll share the experience I have of a lot of people need or want piece of you. And how do you find balance or how do you think about that? How do you deal with that? There's an interesting issue about the lemon on the desk example, which was I'm here to work. I think the reverse is really true as well, which is when are you not here to work? Particularly when you're working at home, even before COVID, I work very long hours. I'm running a big, fascinating, wonderful business that could be all-consuming if I let it. Everyone wants a piece of time. And I love that. I could easily work seven days a week till 10 o'clock at night. And I'm hardwired to do that. The people that I hire are ambitious, driven. They want to go places. So I think it's the reverse issue in some ways, which was 
how do you as a husband or wife or a parent and a friend and an individual create all these time where you're not on, you're not working and, and really, you know, interact with your wife or your husband or your kids, that kind of mindfulness tool of saying, when I'm on, I'm on. And when I'm with you, I'm with you. So when I'm with my kids, I'm with my kids. And I wish I'd known this 20 years ago. And I didn't know that. And I regret that as well. I was always on and I never had the right boundaries. But I guess that's life, right? You grow and learn and evolve. The tools that you have around your work life are powerful uh, in your private life. Carving out time with your family and your friends and yourself is really critical and you'll be better at work. This stuff is really hard because the only way to get good at it is to do it. In doing it, it's very open. You're very in front of everyone, whether or not you're a first-time supervisor or a first-time leader, a manager, or you're a managing partner or a CEO, you're getting better by occasionally falling over, stubbing your toe and having people see that. And I know that is scary for people. I can run an economically successful business, but it's very hard to actually run an agile business or a business that can solve different problems that appear or that can solve them quickly, that can put themselves in the shoes of people around them. And increasingly, when I think about the optimism of what will our future look like, I think that one of the fabulous things that's coming out of this period is we are starting to be self-aware of how this affects us. So suddenly we realize that we aren't superhuman. We're talking about the fact that we're not superhuman. And then we actually realize, well, guess what? That probably means that you might be thinking that you're not superhuman. So we can now start to have a conversation about that. Whereas in the past, there was a little bit of like, you turn up at the office in your armor and I turn up at the office, my office in armor. So I'm quite optimistic that this is going to lead to a sort of awareness, a consciousness of we are not machines. We're not economic engines. It's not just about being really smart or really working hard. And I get a sense from you that that optimism is something that you bring to the organization and the team around you. So as we close, I'm going to ask you to just finish a sentence and maybe think about this through this lens of optimism that you've been talking about. If we have this conversation in 20 years and we say, do you remember that time we spoke back in 2020? We were talking about what's coming down the pike. How would you complete this sentence? When I look back on the leader that I was back in 2020, the thing or few things that I really felt proudest of were dot, dot, dot. That's kind of easy for me in a way because that hasn't changed. I'd be proudest of building this wonderful firm where everyone had a clear sense of purpose and the values were authentic and deeply held because I reckon it just becomes this simplicity and a toolbox and framework to solve any problem. You know, COVID's been awful, but we had this set of values and a clear purpose that when it all went wrong, we were stunned and we were on the back foot, but we could come out calmly and logically together and navigate our way kind of through these terrible times. And I'm already very proud of the culture we built and the layers of the right behaviors and non-negotiable behaviors the shared authenticity of the purpose. In 20 years' time, I'll look back and can you build a high-performing firm that's not just about money, but about its people and its culture? I feel like we're already already doing that. And the irony, of course, is that the stronger the culture, the better people perform, the less likely they are to leave, and you probably make more money anyway, right? If you just spend 99% of your time facing the market and having impact where we can really have impact, not trying to chase down sort of clients and opportunities that aren't well suited to us. 
and really protecting our people, the, the two things marry quite nicely. You talked about your purpose. The idea of being able to distill these complicated things into elevator moments is very, very hard. Nick, this has been fabulous. You have a real intentionality about what you're building. It's really, really, really fascinating. No one's got the answers right. But if you're intentional and deliberate and saying, let's put aside what we tried before and try some new stuff and people trust you, that's powerful. Tune in to the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and elevateservices.com. 